This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to the podcast, the College Football Fix. Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg from USA Today Sports. Uh, sorry, it's been a couple weeks. We have not uh, put one of these out. I was quite busy at the U.S. Open and trying to get through that as well as college football stuff. But uh, now back undivided attention on this crazy college football season. And I'll tell you what, Paul, as we get here through the first few weeks, I, I think it's shaping up to be you know, one of the more interesting seasons just because there have been, I think, vulnerabilities in some of these major teams that maybe we're just not used to seeing. I, I don't know why that is exactly. And maybe it'll change by the end of the year. But when you start to look at the teams that we're used to being in the mix for the college football playoff, right now they all look like they've got some pretty big flaws. Yeah, it's made it a really interesting first couple of weeks. And I think it's like way too soon and, and even like way too unrealistic to say that it's going to hold. Like we'll get to December and there'll be five teams that we never expected will be the, the teams that are, are competing for the playoff. I think it'll still be the same five. At least that's the safe bet. But um, to have, like, Oklahoma look vulnerable against Nebraska and Tulane and have Ohio State lose to Oregon and not look good at all against Minnesota or Tulsa, um, to have Georgia – I mean, I'm sorry, have Clemson struggle against Georgia and then continue to struggle against Georgia Tech. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting couple weeks. I think it speaks to one thing we mentioned at the start, which was this year is going to be super unpredictable because we don't know what to make of 2020 and and what that – like you know, what takeaways you can bring into this year that make you feel secure about anything. Uh, you wrote on Saturday, even Alabama has had moments where they look vulnerable, um, but still Alabama looks like the team to beat and Georgia looks like team number two. But other than that, it's it's hard to tell what the next couple of weeks will look like with these great teams that are, you know, not putting it together the way that we've expected them to. Yeah, and let's start with Alabama because they are – I think still there are some people who might say Georgia should be number one right now. Um, What I found kind of funny is people talking about Alabama and what happened at Florida, almost as if they lost the game. Like are the standards for Alabama so high that just because they went on the road and played a, a top 10 type team and it wasn't just a complete runaway that all of a sudden there's something wrong with Alabama. Uh, I think if that's the standard for them, I think people are probably a little over over the top. I don't know about you. The way I saw that game was they got up 21-0 early or 21-3. It, it happened so fast, so quickly. I think it, it maybe kind of relaxed them a little bit, and, and they kind of went to sleep for about a quarter and a half. And at that point – you, know, you get to halftime and Florida's got some life. They get the ball coming out first in the third quarter. They drive it. Well, all of a sudden now you're you're in a fist fight and you know it's it's hot and muggy down down at the swamp and Alabama got a little tired. Like to me, and again, this will all be proven out over the coming weeks. But to me, that wasn't so much Alabama being really vulnerable, although they certainly could have lost the game. I I think this is one of those things that that that's their floor. In, in some ways. And I think that they're going to be way better even in a couple weeks when they have to play Ole Miss. Yeah. I thought a, a couple takeaways from that one. Um, 
one, I think Alabama should still be number one because, I mean, you watch Florida and you watch Clemson. What's the better win? One in the swamp or against that Clemson team at a neutral site? Definitely so no in the swamp. Definitely. Yeah, and Miami's also got a Miami win. I mean, my, Alabama's number one. Um, issues for Alabama. And, and yeah, like you want to take it one game at a time and not, and not extrapolate too far off of just one Saturday. But still, the running game has been average or worse. Uh, they couldn't stop Florida on the ground. They gave up 244 and four, four touchdowns against the Gators. Um, I just don't know if you can say through three weeks that Alabama is like this juggernaut. And that's okay. I mean, look at all these moving pieces they have coming in. You know, And like you said, in a couple of weeks when they play all Miss, I think they'll be a lot better team. Um, from Florida's perspective, I watch them play Alabama, and my thought is, uh, A, Dan Mullen's a really great football coach. And B, how does this team ever lose to anybody else? Because they play Alabama better than anybody, and they have two times in a row. In the last two and a half years, nobody has played Alabama like the Gators. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by that and by the idea that they really get up for these games but somehow seem to get down for, for a lot of other opponents that they should, if they play at the same level, just take to the woodshed. Um, I think Alabama's moving forward. Like They play Ole Miss, and that's the game that we'll be talking about on October 2nd. I just don't know what Ole Miss does that is going to scare me the way that that Florida did in that environment with that running game. I don't know if that if if you know Ole Miss the team that knocks off Alabama. I think this this Florida combination of a running game, a very good front seven is kind of scary because Georgia's going to do the same thing. So if we want to look ahead to December, maybe that's the the takeaway for this is that hey, if Alabama is going to get pushed around a bit by Florida, what is Georgia going to do? Way down the line, I think this is an escape for Alabama in the sense that it, it keeps everything in play for them, but. Yeah, I don't think that you're going to see them play another team this close, um, uh, you know, at least not until they, they face a team of Georgia's caliber, I think. Well, certainly for Alabama, they don't have to play Georgia in the regular season, so they're going to be sitting back and watching what happens in the East, and it's kind of an either-or. Who is it going to be when they end up in Atlanta the first week of December? Now, obviously, Alabama's still got to win some big games to, to get there, but I just feel like their upside, they still have a lot of upside to go to get to where they're going to be in November. I think, you know, maybe their conditioning wasn't quite as good for some reason. They they did seem to get a little tired in that game and, and you know, who knows why, but, but Florida seemed like maybe they were a little bit better conditioned to play, especially maybe in that kind of humidity. Um, I, I just... To me, I don't think getting pushed around up front like that is something that we're going to see week after week. I think that was more of a one-off. You're right. Florida seems to, for whatever reason, play really, really well against Alabama. I, I just, like, I buy that Ohio State's got real issues. I buy that Clemson's got real issues, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. I just don't necessarily buy that Alabama's issues are endemic like I, I think those I think there are things that that they're going to fix and they're going to address as it, it goes along here but uh, you know certainly that game in two weeks against Ole Miss looks uh, looks mighty interesting because you you maybe are discounting it a little bit I think Ole Miss looks looks quite good I think Ole Miss has the best quarterback in the country I'm not discounting Ole Miss at all I just think the way that they will attack Alabama is a little bit different than Florida right so I'm curious to see how that matches up with well, we know Alabama can run and cover. Um, and we also know they've got dominant figures up front, you know. I mean, I'm not discounting the fact that they've got a bunch of NFL draft picks at, at you know, 
on the line of that linebacker, but it's just a different way of attacking Alabama. I really like Ole Miss. I watched them play three weeks. I saw them play Saturday. I thought they could have scored 100 points at some point on Saturday night. Um, they're a fantastic team. I just, I, I'd be more worried from an Alabama perspective by a different sort of attack. So not to say that I'm not circling that game. I think that's going to be awesome. I mean, last year was 63-48. If you remember last year, Ole Miss, a 5-5 five and five team. They had the ball, I think, down. They might have been down a touchdown or maybe even a field goal, like late in the fourth. Maybe it was 48-45 or something like that. So they, they can score on Alabama. I know that. I just don't know if they're going to stress Alabama the same way I think Florida did. Well, um, and that's another reason why I'm not necessarily – panicking or even doubting Alabama is I remember that game against Ole Miss last year. That was a game where Alabama had to basically score every time they had the ball Mm -hmm. in order to keep that game under control or else there's no doubt uh, Ole Miss would have had a chance to win. And yet that really wasn't what Alabama was the whole season. It was a little bit of a one-off. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, Go ahead. Sorry. No, I think it just, just to leave it with Alabama, like, I want to hammer home this point again. Um, we think Alabama is so invincible because they've earned that right. Still won in the swamp, you know? They won in Gainesville. Full house. We haven't seen a full house in the swamp since 2019. And that crowd was rowdy. I mean, that was a tough environment. And like you said, uh, like a, a hot environment that stressed these guys that haven't really played a fourth quarter game other than Florida last year in a really long time. So I still think that's a, an achievement that we should highlight. Like, and I understand there's this desire to maybe find some flaws with Alabama because it's otherwise a boring conversation. I just think that's a really good achievement. Like, even for an Alabama team that just won the national championship, to win that game in that style in that environment, I think is it should be highlighted. All right, let's go to the team that uh, Alabama played last year in the national championship, and that's Ohio State. And that was an ugly performance on Saturday against Tulsa. Now, the final score says 41-20. Maybe by the end of the season, we're not going to remember or we'll be fuzzy on the details of that game. But the details of that game were that uh, Tulsa was right there, well into the fourth quarter, and then it kind of got away at the end with a couple touchdowns in the final five minutes. Uh, but Ohio State was in, in real danger at points in that game. Tulsa's not a very good team. And we just have not yet seen with Ohio State anything that looks like what we expected. And their defense is basically giving up 500 yards a week. And that doesn't seem like a sustainable way to go through a season. You know, they say that Kerry Coombs was not calling the plays Uh, On Saturday for the defense, he's taken a lot of heat. Uh, Ryan Day's decision to make him the defensive coordinator uh, is is coming under question. I I do think Ohio State's got real problems, and I would say as of right now, like even October second against Rutgers, they've got to go to Rutgers. Like to me, that's a potential problem. Yeah, um, my thought as I watch Ohio State is what would Urban do? You know, his team is two and one, and they're getting, like, skin of their teeth escapes against Minnesota and Tulsa. And they lost at home to Oregon. What would Urban do? How would he handle this situation? And is Ryan Day equipped to handle whatever situation is brewing right now on the defensive side of the ball? Um, 
I'm fascinated by it because Ohio State has been the dominant force in the Big Ten for a decade, since 2012. And right now, like you said, we're like 30 seconds removed from you saying, hey, they've got a road trip to Rutgers that we need to maybe worry about. And that doesn't even mention, hey, they got to play Penn State. Michigan looks like a, like just a, like a sledgehammer of a football team. they got to play Michigan. Like, it's September 21st, and I'm worried about Ohio State getting through Rutgers getting through any of those teams, let alone winning the Big Ten East, let alone winning the conference, getting to the playoff. Um, their issues are different than Clemson because they feel like they might be schematic. They might be play call related more than anything personnel related. But nonetheless, like this has been a really bad football team through three weeks. And I, and I dare you to remember the last time Ohio State looked this bad three straight weeks. And the answer might be when Luke Fickle was head coach. It might have been 2011. Yeah, that ironically, that was the year that uh, they end up in the uh, Gator Bowl against uh, Florida, and Urban Meyer is kind of, you know, hovering the, over the whole thing, and they're about to hire him, and um, feels like a very, very long time ago. But you're right, like Ohio State has not felt this kind of vulnerable since then, and um, yeah, I mean, the the issue for me is like. What's their upside? You know, you, you've now seen them play three games. Where where does the upside come from that gets them to a level where they're going to win all the rest of these games? I I, I don't see it. And you know, even you know C.J. Stroud, who's putting up some you know pretty mediocre numbers, he threw for 185 yards against Tulsa, 15 out of 25. Like, yeah, they're going to be able to run the ball, you know, I think on, on a lot of teams, but um, I just don't think it bodes well for them that, that they don't, they, they obviously have major problems on defense and on offense. I think they're pretty, I don't want to say average, but they're not much better than that. Yeah. They don't look like the team that last year, if you were watching them in big Ten play with fields, and this is unfair because Justin Fields is, is a once in a decade sort of quarterback, but uh you just knew there was no situation, no hole, no environment that they couldn't dig themselves out of on an offensive side. You know what I mean? Like they could get the ball at the three down six in the second quarter. And you just felt that there's no reason to worry at all. Like this offense is going to score two times in the second quarter and then score 28 in the second half. There's no feeling of that whatsoever with Stroud under center. That's not his fault. He's still growing. He's, he's just a kid. Um, they do have those weapons at wide receiver. They weren't able to really exploit that last week against Tulsa. Um, and Tulsa is, like you said, competitive, but they still got a UC Davis loss on their resume. Hard to take them seriously. So I wrote over the weekend, like, we got to stop thinking 2021 Ohio State's just going to win the Big Ten because they have been doing it for so long. I just, I, I can't say that, and you can, and no one can say that right now. They're not the best-looking team in the Big Ten. At best, they're the fourth-looking team in the Big Ten on the eyeball test behind Iowa, um, Penn state and Michigan. And you maybe even get to say that Wisconsin look better and they could be fifth. Um, so they've got a, they've got a long, long way to go. Um, and they got a lot of questions to address, like who's going to call plays on defense the rest of the way. Um, probably not going to be carry. Um, we saw that on Saturday. So this is not a team, uh, like Clemson the same way that you sit here and you think, okay, it's, just a matter of time until it clicks. I think we've seen enough to think and, and to come to a realization that it's not just that something's off um, just like 
on a wavelength. There's deeper issues for Ohio State that's going to prevent them from getting anywhere if they don't fix it. All right, let's continue on in the Big Ten because it is, I think, the most interesting conference right now and just in terms of just the way some of these teams have started. You mentioned that Ohio State's got to go through Penn State. That game is coming later in the season. Uh, I would say Penn State is a team that both you and I said on this podcast was going to bounce back, that that what we saw last season was not reality. Um, but, you know, they're 3-0, and and it was a nice win over Auburn. It was a um, you know really great atmosphere, it looked like, and, and a very solid performance, and Auburn is – you know, pretty good team, but I, I will say like, I, I don't know that I'm all the way bought in yet on Penn state as far as, yeah, they're, they're a real contender. They should, they're going to be in the playoff. Um, you know, Auburn is like, I just said, like probably, you know, the sixth best team in the sec or something like that. And, you know, Penn state did not exactly, um, blow the, blow their doors off. Like it was a, it was a very competitive game. So, you know, Penn State is is impressive in that they're three and zero, but I also think they're a team with some limitations, and I'm not quite ready to jump on them and say they're the favorite to win the Big Ten. No, that's fine. I think what they are is like what Penn State was from 2016 through 19, which is like a two loss team um, that could get and probably has a good shot at getting into the New Year's Six. Um, I don't think they're a playoff team either, but you you can't dispute they've got two solid wins. Um, they're going to cruise against Villanova. They're going to beat Indiana to start October, and then they get uh, Iowa, Ohio State, and Michigan in about a month span, and, and that'll determine where things fall. Um, but yeah, like we said, this is back to what we what we always thought Penn State should be. This is like an eleven and two football team, and that's great. That's Penn State's ceiling, pretty much. I don't think they have the talent to beat those great SEC teams in, in a college football playoff. I mean, let's just be reasonable. But they are going to bounce back, and they have so far. And, and, you know, obviously, last year's pandemic year, let's throw it out the window because that 4-5 and five record doesn't reflect the program that Franklin's built. Yeah, and they're going to play uh, at Iowa, as you said, in, in a few weeks, and, and that's going to be a major deal for both teams. Iowa is looking very Iowa-y. Uh, probably as Iowa E as they've ever looked, or maybe since 2015 when they got very close to getting in the playoff. And it's just, I, I can just see this unfolding again the same way it did a half dozen years ago, where mm-hmm. they go through and they win all these games and they don't really look like they're that impressive, but you know that they're good. And it's just a matter of like, could you really envision them challenging an Alabama or a Georgia? And at that point, it's very hard to sort of stay on that Iowa bandwagon, you know, and, and there's going to be a big backlash to this team, the more they win. Uh, but I would say overall, like their competition's better now than it was that year. They have a good win over Iowa state. Uh, they're going to have to beat a Penn state or Wisconsin. I, I think we have to get comfortable with the idea that I was in the conversation. <laughs> First of all, I love this team. Um, this team, uh, it's like 1994 when I watch this team. I love it. Uh, we need to get comfortable with the idea that Iowa is going to be 12-0 and 0 on November 27th. Right? We need to get comfortable with that idea because they play Penn State at home on October 9th. I assume that's going to be a primetime game. They do go to Wisconsin on October 30th. 
Otherwise, this is who they play. Colorado State on Saturday. They go at Maryland. They're home for Purdue on the 16th of November. In October, at Northwestern. First Minnesota versus Illinois at Nebraska. I'm saying there's like a 43.1% chance that Iowa's 12-0 on Thanksgiving. I'm sorry, the day after Thanksgiving. Right? I mean, look at this schedule. This is like you said. Like This is like that team that went 12-0 and and then lost the Big 12 Big Ten Championship by a half yard against Michigan State. Um, this team might be even better. I, I don't think we know that yet. But I'm very comfortable with Iowa running the table. I like Iowa to break the door in, um, make everyone hate them, play an ugly, disgusting, hideously terrible brand of football that puts you to sleep by like the early second quarter every single week and just beat everybody. I'm all for it. So are you calling them? Are you calling Iowa in the playoff right now? I'm saying if Ohio State is not the team that we think that they are and they're not going to just be dominant by December 2nd or whenever that game is played. I think Iowa could be 13 and 0. Like I'm saying, 41 and a half percent chance that Iowa is 13 and 0. Don't don't sleep on that game in Maryland. Maryland is uh, three and sure. 0. Uh, Mike Fox is doing a nice job. He's doing a good job. I watched him play Illinois on last week. Um, yeah, they're not that good. It didn't didn't do it much for me. Um, what Iowa does really well is uh, is just like. It was like the guys who water the field, like the Notre Dame guys who grew the grass out before they played USC. They like they do that to every opponent. Like every opponent looks like they're playing at three quarter speed, or that they forgot, like they brought the wrong pair of cleats. Um, like just Iowa just muddies the water, makes it ugly. I think it's great, Dan. I really do. I really like watching Iowa. I'm very nostalgic for a time when college football meant a lot to me as a as a person. Like when I was 11 years old, and it really carried my weeks. For five months, it was just you know, it was just my life, and Iowa makes me feel that way. It makes me feel mid nineties. I want to watch them in non HD. Like I don't, I, I five seventy is my ESPN regular. Sometimes I watch Iowa at channel seventy, and it's really pixelated. It's a terrible picture, but it makes me feel like a kid again. Um, is that too much? Is it no? Too much I mean, I, I think that's I think that's lovely, a lovely sentiment. Um, I and I kind of get what you mean. Like I remember. As a kid, you know, one of those years like Iowa's in, you know, some big bowl game and they're down in Florida and yeah, you can't really see the TV very clearly, but you can you can see those uniforms, those crisp uniforms. I think Kurt Ferentz was the coach then as well. He's been there for 20 something years. I'd be glad. I'd be happy for him. Uh, maybe I wouldn't be. We should probably cut me saying I'd be happy for Kurt Ferentz. We shouldn't have anything like that. But let me start again. I would be happy for Iowa after all this time of being in the conversation, being close, getting to big bowl games, if they stuck to their script for this long and it paid off. I think that'd be a, a nice payoff for a program that has stayed the course for 20-something years. Well, and let's add on to it. A year ago, a year and a half ago, I thought Kirk Ferentz was kind of done. Like after all the stuff came out about you know how the former – black players at Iowa felt about the culture there and um, that there were all these stories related to how the former strength coach Chris Doyle treated people and um, you know it just kind of looked to me like all right this is kind of crumbling now and it didn't turn out to be the case uh, and and you don't hear that stuff anymore so uh, I guess Ferentz made the adjustments necessary that he needed to make to not only keep his job but to 
regain the trust of of that locker room and and they're they're playing great football. The other team in the Big Ten that's making a real impact right now is one that I hear about every week uh, on Twitter. I know that you're not really on Twitter anymore these days, or, or at least not very much. Uh, but back when uh, somebody who works for USA Today Sports wrote a preseason story about the worst teams in college football this year, uh, Michigan State was was identified as one of those teams. And so I tweeted that link. And for some reason, all these Michigan State fans, um, every week, every win, they just flood my Twitter as if I was the one that wrote that story, which I did not. I just tweeted the link, uh, which I do for pretty much everything that that comes out that we write. But, um, yeah, I'm not going to name names about who identified Michigan State as one of the worst teams in college football, but uh, it's clearly not the case. They're They're doing great. Why did you write that story then? If they weren't, <laughs> if they weren't one of the worst teams, why did you write it and then share it? I just don't. I'm, maybe I'm just a little bit confused. Uh, okay. Well, look. First off, worst teams in the Power Five. Okay, to start. And I didn't say that they necessarily were the worst team. I just said one of these two teams. This doesn't make it a lot better, but I said one of these two teams is going to finish last in the East Division of the Big Ten. Um, so headlines are a little bit misleading. Um, Obviously not the case. They've been good. The questions going in for Michigan State entering the year, you had a second-year coach who didn't have a true first year, so there was a lot of uncertainty around what he was going to develop. Um, there was like this massive influx of new faces, huge number of transfers, so so many unknowns across the depth chart. Um, I'm not going to take anything away from 3-0, and and I don't like, like you said, I don't like care what people say on Twitter or if they're mad at me for Michigan state for saying Michigan state was not going to be that good. Um, I think it's a hell of an achievement that they're three and O, but they have beaten Northwestern Youngstown state and, you know, 21 points against Miami looks a little bit, you know, a little bit soft because they scored a late touchdown and we know Miami's in shambles. So I don't know if I'm really ready to say that they're a top 25 team or that they're necessarily going to go out now with nine games because they started three and O, but, they look good. And Mel Tucker, I think I did see this on Twitter on Saturday. I thought this was very cool. He wore shorts at the game in Miami. Shorts instead of pants. And I just wish that other coaches would look at that and realize you don't need to dress in slacks like some dummy, like some guy who's like going to a bar mitzvah somewhere for football games on the sideline. You can wear shorts. You can wear shorts and flip-flops. No one's going to call on you to play. No one's going to ask you to deliver, you know, like a package somewhere. You can just wear shorts and sneakers like Mel Tucker did. I hope other people follow his lead. Well, basketball-wise, like we're never going to go back, I don't think, where coaches wear suits on the sidelines. I think that's over. Um, for whatever reason, it started you know, during the pandemic where coaches show up wearing, you know, pullovers or polos or whatever. Uh for years and years, like teams would college teams would go out to Hawaii or they'd go to these preseason uh, tournaments, these holiday tournaments, and they'd they'd dress casually, and then all of a sudden they'd return home and and they're back to wearing their three thousand dollars suits, and you're just like, why? Like, what is the point of this? And yeah, I don't think we're ever going back. And certainly, if Mel Tucker is starting a new tradition, if it catches on, uh. 
I'm all for it. Although I think there's certainly some college football coaches that you might not be all that interested in seeing their legs. Oh, you think they should, some guys should wear long pants at all times. There are people in the world who don't look great in shorts. Yeah. As I've gotten older, Dan, I feel less and less comfortable wearing shorts around Just being honest. Don't I skip love wearing shorts. Don't skip leg day. I try to do, I do the stair stepper. I, I do my leg press and all that stuff. I, I run still. Nonetheless, there's just a level of dis, of uncomfort, discomfort, uncomfortability about, you know, maybe I need to be wearing pants. I need to ask Mel Tucker about this. <clears throat> if he felt any sort of, uh, any self-consciousness, he's in good shape. Uh, dude obviously lifts weights. So he looked good doing it. Like I'm trying to, I'm looking through the list of coaches right now, the guys who I do not want to see wear shorts. Um, we don't have to name them. No, no, no. I'm going to name one guy. Hold on. Let me, uh, I'm, I'm almost through this right here. Um, yeah, well, I've seen Mike Leach in shorts, so I'm going to be like, that's okay. I'm going to think about this. I'll get back to you by the end of the show. I'm going to find a guy I don't want to see in shorts. Brady Hoke. I found it. Brady Hoke. Uh, San Diego State. That was an interesting box score last week. Did you see that box score? Yeah, the triple OT. San Diego State's 3-0. They're 2-0 against the Pac-12. They're 7-2 against the Pac-12 since 2016. Um, Brady Hope, who I just made a joke about, everyone kind of, uh, you know, he's been a punchline since he left Michigan, for better or worse, but he's done a nice job there. They're a really good team, um, and they're going to make some noise in the Mountain West. That's a wide-open Mountain West. I think they might be the best team along with Fresno. Yeah, they had 44 passing yards in that game against Utah. <laughs> 40, 44. And they won the game. Yeah, that's what they do. San, uh, uh, Dan, just like quick aside, real quick. San Diego State, um, are they in the, that next four? You know what I'm talking about? Like those next four Mountain West AAC teams that are on, on the, like, you know, the next four out of bracketology. Is that how you view that? Are, are you talking about from an ex, like expansion? Like yeah. the Big 12 were to add more teams? Yeah. Just Big Twelve or and Twelve is a stretch, but yeah, I, I think I think now in, in terms of like what would be a valuable program to add, you're you're kind of down to Memphis, San Diego State. You know, you could argue Boise State either way. Um, their relevance may be kind of fading a little bit at this point. You could make an argument for UNLV just based on market. Uh, obviously, not su- not success in either main sport right now. They, they're kind of a mess. And then there's people who talk about Colorado State a little bit, um, but I don't see it. Uh, they, they built that new stadium, and they've just made terrible football decision after terrible football decision. But, yeah, you're, you're kind of down to San Diego State and Memphis as far as I'm concerned. Mm, interesting. Maybe South Florida, though, though they need to get their act together. Yeah. Gosh, what is going on there? Um, yeah, I think San Diego State, they're good people there. I've always enjoyed my interactions with them. And obviously, they've got their own stadium, finally. So I think there's some appeal. I was curious in your thoughts since we did bring it up. Yeah. I'm sorry to hijack that. Where are we in terms of – do you want to talk about Clemson at all? Is yeah, I was, I was going to go – no, I was going to go there next. So because um, the theme that we started with was the struggling powers that we're used to. And obviously, Clemson – offensively right now is just not what most of us expected. Uh, we saw last year and a glimpse of DJ Uyunglele, how gifted and talented he is as a quarterback. 
uh, but maybe people didn't quite uh, didn't quite adjust for the loss of Travis Etienne and what that was going to do to their team, and maybe we underrated just how good Trevor Lawrence was. So I think all those things kind of together, and now you've got an offensive unit at Clemson that's really struggling to find themselves. There's some issue with Clemson that I think is really deep-seated that has to do with their offensive line, has to do with the fact that they can't get the ball downfield, um, has to do with the fact that they They don't even try to get it downfield. Right. They, it's, it's, they're, it's, not, it's not like Tony Elliott took the South Carolina job. You know what I mean? Like It's not like Brandon Streeter is now the offensive coordinator at Texas. Like It's the same dudes. Um, there's obvious issues, not with schematics. It's personnel related. And one thing that we've always said about Clemson um, throughout this dynasty is that you never, not never, but the one thing that every single year you stop and you wonder about is their offensive line. Like every single year, you've had a run of outstanding quarterbacks. You've had a run of really great running backs, including an all-timer just last year. You've had a series of incredible wide receivers who get incredible coaching from Dabo, who's the best wide receiver coach in the country. Um, but this offensive line is as, as great as Caldwell is and as beloved as he is and as nice of the job as he's done and getting lines together that can win a national championship. For me, I'm always like, what do you know? What, what do you hear about these guys? Because they're not five-star guys. They're not getting immediate impact. Like this is a lock for a five-star Alabama kid to be a, a starting left tackle as a true freshman. And maybe this is a one-off season, but this is a year, very obviously, where the offensive line is not in shape and not ready to go. And they beat Georgia Tech 14-8 because they can't push the ball downfield. And if Clemson can't take advantage of their athletes, they're just another team. Good enough to beat Georgia Tech, probably good enough to beat a lot of teams in the Atlantic, but nowhere close to good enough to play for a national championship. Like, not even close. They're average in that conversation right now. So that's a shocking development. I don't want to put it on DJ like Trevor Lawrence is the answer. It's, it's beyond him. I think it's, it's deeper than, than, than just the quarterback play at this point. There's a lot of Clemson fans right now who are pretty frustrated with Tony Elliott. Um, I wonder, you know, kind of, is there any blame there just in terms of not maybe innovating, not leveling up, not finding new ways to adapt to this personnel? I mean, it's, it's fair to criticize these coaches. He's making a million bucks. He should have answers. I just don't think that his, like, all of a sudden, Tony Elliott and those guys are like, we need a, a horizontal offense. Like, we need an offense that plays within five yards of the line of scrimmage, where 30% of our passes are at the line of scrimmage or within five yards of the line of scrimmage and, and closer. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. You can criticize Elliott all you want, but you know from his track record and from this coaching staff's track record, they want to push it. They want to be downfield. They want to take advantage of Justin Ross and Rodgers and Williams and all these receivers who have come through the program the last eight years or so. So, yeah, you can criticize the coaches for not having the personnel ready to go. That's a recruiting issue, a talent development issue, an evaluation issue. But I don't think that it's like all of a sudden they don't know what they're doing or Georgia Tech figured it out. I think that's ridiculous. Is there a fix? Like, that's the whole question, though, is can they get to a level by the end of the season where maybe they are more competitive at the top? And will they kind of play themselves out of the race in the meantime. That's that's I think the whole thing with Clemson because you even in the state they're in, they're they're gonna be favored to win all their games. So I, I don't know, you know, what are we looking for 
to change our minds about what they're capable of. Yeah, I think you made a really good point there, Dan, in that this year could go off the rails before they figure it out. Truly could. And that would be disappointing. I think you have to give them the benefit of the doubt um, in terms of being able to figure it out, whether it's, you know, whatever you have to do. If I had the answer, um, I would be hanging up right now and I'd be cashing in. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. I think there is some there is a line of thought, um, uh, according to people like, you know, Larry Williams and those guys who have covered the program throughout this dynasty, that the issue is offensive line, but also having a guy who can move the sticks on third and eight. Like they've got a lot of great athletes who are bigger guys, but I don't think they have a guy who's like, you know, who's going over the middle and making a seven yard grab on third and six in a key situation in the third or fourth quarter. I don't know if they have that guy. And I think that might be a secondary issue. But if they can figure out the offensive line and do it soon, I think they can write this ship because obviously the talent is there. The coaching is there. They got this young kid at Shipley in Shipley at running back who could be a difference maker if given the right, you know, surrounded by the right sort of offense and sort of talent. So they could figure it out. But like you said, Dan, like if it takes a month, the year's over. They've got like two weeks to get this thing solved because once they get into October and things get a little bit more difficult, um, the way they're playing right now, I mean, Boston College would beat them. You know, a lot of teams in the Coastal would beat them. Uh, and the idea that Clemson could go nine and three or something in the regular season is kind of wild. But that's what they look like right now. They look like. Oh, shit. They look like a six-win team, but realistically, they look like a nine-win team. And that's a, I mean, that's ridiculous in the ACC to go nine and three for Clemson. They've got to get it fixed. Well, they do have NC State this week at NC State. And even though maybe NC State's not quite as good as a lot of their fans had hoped, that's, I think I would circle that one as a danger game. Yeah. And NC State plays them tough. And look, BC is only, like, I keep forgetting when it is. It feels like it's like September 3rd still. Uh, BC is the first weekend of October. So yeah, if they don't get it fixed in two weeks, their year's done. Um, the team that played Georgia Tech and the team that played Georgia, they could lose both of these games, Dan. They could be two and three heading into midway point of October. Legitimately. Two and three. And then you better get ready for Wake Forest against Duke for the ACC championship. No. Don't yeah. don't even yeah. don't even bring that up. Hey, don't even don't even say the yeah. name Duke on this podcast. Wake Forest is really good, Dan. Wake Forest is really good. Not national championship good, but I think they're a top twenty five team. I think they could be like team number twenty four in the final poll. They could go ten and three. Very well coached by Dave Clawson. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> while it was happening, like that score against Florida State was just one of those that just smacks you right in the face. Like they're blowing Florida State out, and I know Florida State is not Florida State right now, but I, I just I didn't watch that game, so I don't know. Was that more about Florida State or was that more about Wake Forest? Yeah, I watched the middle quarters of that back and forth. Um, Florida State just can't do anything on offense with their quarterback situation with Travis and Milton. Uh, Wake Forest looks like the '85 Bears compared to the Seminoles right now. Uh, this is looking like a nine-loss team. Like we talk about Clemson being a nine-win team and being disappointed. Florida State could lose eight or nine games this year. They haven't done that since 1974, I believe. Um, it's a bad situation, Dan. I, I feel like you have some thoughts on the Seminoles. I don't know if we want to go there because we're already running late, but it's a bad situation for Norvell. Like, you know, the house is kind of on fire. Like, the fire has breached the inner walls at this point for the Seminoles. Yeah, I, I don't know how much to blame him 
but in some ways it doesn't even really matter. Obviously, right. this, the seeds of this disaster were planted a couple coaches ago. And, you know, obviously Willie Taggart caught a lot of that shrapnel and now it's coming toward Mike Norvell. It's never felt right for whatever reason. Even during the pandemic, you had some tension in the locker room and stuff that, that kind of seeped out. I don't know what it is because I have a lot of confidence that he's a good football coach. Uh, but right now, it's obviously a struggle for him to get control of of that thing. And yeah, when I look over the schedule, they'll be lucky to win two games. Like that's just the the reality of it. And can Florida State keep a coach who's two and ten? Can they afford to fire somebody when they already owe all this money to uh, the last guy, and then bring somebody else in and? You know, then it's going to be this whole thing about Deion Sanders, and do they want to do they want to go there? Like, oh man, <laughs> it's a mess. Well, you, well, that's that is what that's what people are talking about. People yeah. are talking about, all right, you get Mike Norvell out of there. Well, then what's your next move? It's probably Deion. <laughs> I don't ha- like that's not a problem for me. Like I like I don't have anything against that at all. I'd be fascinated by it. I think it'd be great for college football. Um, it'd be good for that fan base to finally find a guy that they can be like, okay, it's prime time. Let's get on board. I think that'd be great. I'd love to see Dion in that job, but just like that collection of sentences in a row to me made me laugh. Um, because, and not like out of like, that's funny, but just at the absurdity of the whole thing. Like here we are three games into his second year during a pandemic. And here we are like, we're talking about Dion as the next coach at Florida state in like two and a half months. I just think that's absurd. It's absurd. Um, so, and I'm here for it, um, but it's, it's absurd. Well, and I don't even know if he's any good as a coach. I have no idea. I don't know how anyone could know. And you just have to understand that it's going to be all about him. And that's going to manifest itself in some good ways and probably some bad ways. And you just have to, understand that uh, it would be interesting to see whether let's just say it would be good content. It would be very good content, but you know, I hope for Mike Norvell's sake that, that they can get some things figured out. I just, I just don't know. It's, it's, it seems to be broken as it does at Miami. It's just broken. Um, I don't think Manny Diaz has the credibility or the credentials of Mike Norvell. In fact, he doesn't. I mean, Mike Norvell got a, got a, a Memphis team to, to the cotton bowl. Um, Manny Diaz comparatively has done nothing and he's going to continue to do nothing. It seems because just the more you talk to people there and in and around that situation, they just say he's not a head coach and, you know, maybe a little too much trying to be the player's friend, the, the lack, there's sort of a lack of discipline. Um, you know, the kids aren't going there and really putting in the work, uh, and they need to make a change. Like they just, it's not going to work. It's the, I think fifth straight Miami football coach that is just not going to work, which is wild. Yeah. I, I think one thing, Dan, that I feel like I've learned or that I've just believe at this point after all these years is that if you're a power five program, don't ever hire a coach who's never been a head coach before. Is that a stretch? And maybe there are some oh. asterisks, asterisks underneath that for mitigating circumstances. 
But why would you ever hire a guy who's never done the job before at a place where the stakes are so high? Every argument is going to have some examples on the other side. Bob Stoops at Oklahoma, right? Nineteen ninety nine. I know. I know. I'm. I. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that there's always going to be special cases where you can make the opposite argument, but I think that's generally generally correct in that what it takes to run one of these programs right now is just a different skill set than being a defensive coordinator. And if you're hiring somebody who's never done it, it's a real crapshoot in a program that's got high expectations, that's got big demands, that's got that kind of pressure and, and frankly, a lot of complications. Like, if you're recruiting at a high level, a lot of the situations you you encounter are going to have complications. So I, I agree with you, um, but you know at the same time, like Al Golden was a head coach and did a pretty good job at Temple. They bring him to Miami, and he's just a fish out of water. So they're they're flailing around there. Um, I'm more confident that there'll be a new coach in Miami next year than Florida State, but I think it's certainly on the table that both end up making changes. Let's um, wrap up here with the last sort of legacy team that uh, has gotten off to a weird start, I would say, and that's Oklahoma, who I know you were very high on in the preseason, as were a lot of people, and Spencer Rattler was getting – a lot of buzz is the Heisman Trophy favorite. He has not looked the part. Oklahoma has not looked the part. They seem to be a bit better on defense uh, this year, although the the score of the Tulane game, it, it got pretty sketchy at the end. But they just look a fraction off offensively. And is that all down to Rattler not being as good as we thought? Or are people kind of catching up to what – Lincoln Riley does. I'm just not sure kind of what to make of it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's that like just a hair off timing wise, whatever. Uh, obviously, the the schematics, I don't I don't think that people have caught up to Riley. And if, even if they did, there is a, a talent gap there between them and the rest of the Big 12 by and large. So I'm, I'm not like worried about his X's and O's. I think Rattler. His the acclaim that we gave him that I gave him this summer was really rooted in like such a simple idea, right? Which is that every other QB who's come through for under Riley has been fantastic, especially those who have been a returning starter. I mean, returning starters have won the Heisman. So Rattler as a guy who showed signs of, of a real improvement in like the last five games of last season after a really spotty start, I, I think it was just logical to expect that he was going to explode. And you haven't seen that. I mean, you take out Western Carolina, he's like, you know, the 50th best QB in the country by the metrics through two games against FBS opponents. Um, the good news for OU, like you said, this defense is a lot better. That two-lane game, I, I don't put a lot of stock into that as a harbinger because it was 37-13 at halftime, and then Oklahoma you know, learned a lesson the hard way that you can't give up. Um, I thought Nebraska did some interesting things with their running game. Oklahoma had responses. You saw their talent show up in a couple goal-line stands or, or, or stands on our defensive side in the red zone. So I think OU... I do not want to put them in the class at all of, of Clemson and Ohio State. And I don't think you do either. I think they've shown more than that. But we're still looking for a complete football game. And maybe that's Saturday night against West Virginia. But you do want to see the game that we've expected from the start, that you thought you'd see against Tulane and Nebraska, which is, you know, 
you know, 47, 21. That's the kind of game we're waiting for. I think it's lurking. I think it's looming and I don't want to rag on Rattler too much, but um, I think if he shows up and is the quarterback, we think that he could be and that the quarterback that he should be in this system under Riley, um, there's another level and another gear for OU. They're not in the Alabama Georgia class at all, but I still kind of put them number three, number four right now, along with Oregon in that conversation. Let's just run through real quick before we wrap up. Uh, we've got some games this weekend. This is not the most exciting slate of games, but there are some that will be keyed in on. Notre Dame at Wisconsin, probably not as good as maybe we thought it was going to be. Notre Dame has been a pretty uninspiring 3-0. They, they've just kind of mucked it up a little bit against some some pretty mediocre competition. You know, Purdue, Toledo, obviously we now look at that overtime win over Florida state through a different lens. They got to go to Wisconsin. This could be the game that kind of flushes Notre Dame out of the conversation. I I think there's a real likelihood of that. Yeah. It's in soldier field. I mean, it's going to be a Notre Dame heavy crowd as you might expect. Oh, I'm sorry. I I thought it was, I thought it was at Wisconsin. No, they, they moved that one to soldier field. And I think it's, I mean, that's an awesome environment. I think the issue for Notre Dame, like you said, it's uninspired play, skinnier teeth to a degree, obviously against Toledo um, and Florida state for that matter, which has yielded, you know, not a good look for Notre Dame a couple weeks later. They got Wisconsin, Cincinnati, at Virginia tech, USC next four games. Um, Looking like they would split those four just based on what we've seen. And, then, and I think it starts with a loss to Wisconsin on Saturday. I just don't know if you can have any confidence right now in, in what Notre Dame is, is capable of achieving. I think Wisconsin's still a top 20, 15 team potentially. So I expect them to lose on Saturday unless, like Oklahoma, they got another gear lurking. But there's no reason at all to assume that through three games. Cincinnati really needs Notre Dame to win that game. Oh, really. God, yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. Um. Rutgers at Michigan. I am excited about this one. Michigan's a 19-point favorite. That seems wrong to me. Hmm. Like, I just don't think Michigan is three touchdowns better than a quality Rutgers team. But I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Shiano guy. I think he's a very great coach. He's got things moving in the right direction. But, no, I think Michigan stomps him. Really? Okay. Yeah, I just think Michigan right now is playing a powerful brand of football. Um, they've got 1,057 rushing yards through three games, 15 rushing touchdowns through three games. One of those teams is Washington. I mean, Washington might be kind of a mess, but they still play good defense. So I put a lot of stock into what Michigan has done and what they look like. Rutgers is getting there, um, you know, but this is still year two under under Shiano. I don't, I don't think they're ready at this point to win in the big house. So I think 19 is fair. 17 to 24 points, I think. You got some solid B-level games. Iowa State at Baylor. Baylor's, I think, much improved from where they were in year one under Aranda. You're starting to see uh, his imprint on that team, and and I think you know he maybe it will admit he made some mistakes in year one and is is addressing them. His first time as a head coach, and you know replacing Matt Rule, and that's a tough. That's a tough guy to follow, but uh, I'm going to be keyed in on that one because I think it's going to be interesting to see Baylor try to run the ball against uh, that Iowa State team. Kansas State at Oklahoma State, both 3-0. and Oklahoma State, um, they are kind of scraping by, but that was a good win to go to Boise and, and get, that, get that done. And then uh, A&M against Arkansas, which is always in Jerry World. And, I mean, who would have thought Arkansas – 
you know, year two under Sam Pittman is is a top twenty five team. I don't know that they're really one of the twenty five best teams in the country, but they are three and zero, and they they play the right way. Dan, I agree with you. I do not believe Arkansas is one of the top twenty five teams in the country, but I do not dispute the fact that they should be in the top twenty five right now. They look nice. That's a nice story. Um, if you recall, they were quite terrible before he arrived. But still, they're still six and seven under Pittman. Like they're still not below five hundred. But uh, a lot of good, a lot of goodwill, I think, paid to Pittman and to Arkansas right now. I don't think they've got what it takes to beat A and M. But backup QB, neutral site, crazier things have happened. If Arkansas wins this game, I think it it redraws how we look at the SEC West. I think Pittman is a great example of maybe you you don't have to put too much stock into what position people coached or whether they were coordinators, you know, I think it's about connecting emotional intelligence, getting guys to play hard, getting them to buy in, being a leader. And then obviously the recruiting side, they've, they've gone out and done a pretty good job in the portal. So you can, you can get things turned around pretty quickly, you know, whether they ever take that next step, that next level is a different deal. But, uh, Certainly like what I'm seeing out of Arkansas. And like you said, uh, A&M is not, I, I don't think, in a position right now with the quarterback situation to feel too confident going in there. Uh, but I will be locked in on that most certainly on Saturday. All right, so that's where we'll leave the podcast for now. Appreciate everybody for listening. Please like us, rate us, and subscribe on whatever podcast app you use to listen. We thank you for your support, for your readership. USAToday.com. Go in and buy buy a subscription um, so that you can read all of the content from myself and Paul Meyerberg. That'll do it for this one. The College Football Fix presented by USA Today Sports. Have a great week. Talk to you guys next time. This is the College Football Fix podcast from USA Today Sports. 